You're listening to the Leadership Jam Session Podcast, the place where you'll get to hear leaders at all levels of management share their practical solutions to the management challenge you face every day. So let's give it a jam. I'm your host, Rob Fonte. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Leadership Jam Session. Today's guest is Craig Weldon, who is a retired U.S. Army General Officer and a United States Marine Corps Senior Executive who has also spent seven years in the corporate world. Major General Weldon is also the author of the best-selling book called Leadership, the Art of Inspiring People to Be Their Best. He's now dedicated to giving back 50 years of leadership and life lessons to the next generation of leaders. General, it is an honor to have you with us today. Thanks, Rob. Happy to be with you. I'm looking forward to diving into your, your book. So are you ready to jam? Absolutely. All right. I've read a lot of leadership books over the years, and I have to say, I thoroughly enjoyed reading your book, which is based on your leadership journey and how you provided valuable leadership and life lessons. And I know you talk about the rocks that you picked up along the way that you carry in your rucksack. Perhaps you can share with our listeners what you mean by that, because I know you'll probably make some references to that metaphor throughout our discussion. It's really associated. I've got a chapter in my book about mentorship, and I talk about four different kinds, assigned, self-appointed, sought after, and virtual. And virtual is the one that I've learned the most from over the past 40 plus years. And what I, what do I mean by that? I mean, life in uh, your personal life and in your professional life is like walking down a path. And as you walk down this path, you're going to find these rocks on the path. And these rock, metaphorical rocks represent uh, the good things that you want to adopt and, uh, and also the bad things that you want to avoid. And so what I have done in my life and what I encourage other people to do is to spend the time on this path, picking up the rocks and putting them in their rucksack, uh, those things that are really, really good and those things that are really, really bad, pick up both the rocks and put them in your rucksack. Because as you go through your journey, professionally or personally, you want to remind yourself to do those things that you saw, that you learned from in your life, and uh, remind yourself not to do those things that weren't so. I've got plenty of rocks in my rucksack that I picked up along the way over many, many decades. Well, and you make a great point. I, I talk about this a lot in my workshop and how I how I state that you can learn just as much from a bad leader than you could from a than you can from a, a great leader based on what not to do. I love how you talk about it in, in that term of a virtual mentoring. And right out of the gate in your first chapter, you tackle one of the longest running debates out there. In fact I was facilitating a workshop the other week where this very question came up. And the question is, are leaders born or are they made? I think it's a little bit of both. I um, have often met people who thought they were born to be leaders, but nature didn't agree with them. Uh, they didn't nurture what little they had to fill the gaps. They lacked the qualities that uh, really makes a strong leader stand out. I have a call out in my book that basically says combining innate skills with world-class training often produces great results. I talk about character being part nurture and part nature. What I mean by that is people are born with certain capabilities and skills that can be fine-tuned over time through effective training. And so what you want to do is combine the best potential that you find in people for strong leadership and then train them in such a way that you maximize their potential. I have a call out in my book on page two that says combining innate skills with world-class training quite often produces great results. U.S. military seeks the former and provides the latter. And having spent 
over 40 years with the military, you find that they do look for strong leaders who have an inherent capability, uh, and then they try to maximize through effective training. And the military does a very good job of providing that kind of training throughout their career. It's very formalized from the time you come in, uh, in the basic course, uh, all the way up to and including serving as a general officer. Yeah, it is amazing how the military does a great job of this in terms of of providing that that training. I mean, I think we all agree that being leaders is a lifelong journey of learning. The military does a great job of providing that training, you know, all, all along the way. It is something that oftentimes is is lacking in the private sector. I come across leaders at, at, at higher levels that do not continue to train their skills or or to work on their skills. I think it's it's a it's a big gap. And I'm sure you've come across that too in the corporate world. Yeah, I actually experienced that in the Army when I had been spent uh, the first 20 years of my career. I was an armor officer, a tanker, a cavalryman, and I was uh, basically learning how to fight the Cold War in Europe against the Soviet Union. And at about the 20-year point, the Army decided that they were going to make me a base commander. And I didn't know anything about running a base. And quite frankly, I didn't really want to learn because that wasn't my comfort zone. But I became a base commander anyway, and it was the best thing that ever happened to me. Even though I didn't have the technical skills of running a base because I had never done it before, I did have a pretty good sense for people and uh, who I could trust and who I couldn't trust. And I uh, also made sure that the team that I was joining was about 3,000 employees understood that I was coming on to join their team. And yes, I was the leader, but I didn't have a lot of experience in what they did. So I was going to do everything I could to learn from them. And, and we were very successful. And I don't think it was, it wasn't because I had any special skills in running a base because I didn't. It's because any skills that I did have were leadership skills that I applied to that 3000 person workforce, which was very, very different than one I had been used to for the previous 20 years. And did you feel that that really help to elevate your leadership skills? I think it did because, again, I got out of my comfort zone after 20 years of being in an all-male, all-army environment, uh, combat arms. Uh, that's all I had done for the entire time I was in the in the military. And now I was in an organization that was 95% civilian. It was uh, about 50% female. It was about 50% German because I was in Germany at the time. So I had to deal with things like union and building new buildings and running childcare centers and, and conducting town halls and all the kinds of things that I had never done in the first 20 years of my career. It really broadened my perspective about what an effective leader needs to be uh, when they're out of their comfort zone, which I was at the time. You know, oftentimes I come across leaders that, that are looking to fill their positions and uh, at higher levels and uh, will pass on people or even internally won't promote people because they don't have the technical skills uh, for that specific area. And yet they fail to see that it's really the leadership skills that it's needed. And oftentimes great leaders are, are passed over because of that, which is a shame. Yeah, it truly is. I want to go back to what we were talking about before related to the rocks that you carry along the way and the behaviors that you observe and pick up and how leaders can make a, a, a huge impact on you. And I know you write about this in your book, which is a powerful section on leaders that, that care. Leadership is caring. Perhaps you can share a story about 
about the motor pool and your experience with the commander of that base. Sure. I uh, came out of college in 1973 and went to Fort Hood, Texas. About seven or eight months later, I married my college sweetheart, and she joined me down at Fort Hood. We were uh, fine for about two years, and then she left me. And when she left me, I was absolutely crushed. It was the first actual failure that I think I had experienced in my lifetime. Uh, And it was devastating. And for me, I dealt with that by going to work every day. And I just stayed at work. And I found myself one night, I was a battalion maintenance officer of a tank battalion, at Fort Hood, and uh, my offices were in the motor pool where all the tanks were. And I found myself one Friday night about 7.30 in the evening in the motor pool doing paperwork, just trying to keep my mind busy so I didn't have to focus on my personal problems. In walked the brigade commander, Colonel Jack Woodmancy. He was a full colonel. I was a first lieutenant. There were many, many layers between me and him. We had never met before. He had a brigade of about 4,000 soldiers. I was just one of them. And he said, Lieutenant, let's go take a walk through the motor pool. And I thought at the time, what a perfect storm of bad luck. Here I am going through all these personal problems. And now the brigade commander is going to inspect the motor pool. So I got up from my desk. We went outside and we walked up and down the tank tank line in the uh, dark. There was, we were the only two there except for the motor pool guards. And he never talked about maintenance. He never talked about my personal problems. All he talked about were the challenges that he had faced in his lifetime and how he had overcome them. And when we got back to the front gate of the motor pool near my office, he put his hand on my shoulder and he said, there's light at the end of this tunnel. You just can't see it yet. Have a great weekend. And he left. And he took me out of this depths of despair that I was in right then. And it demonstrated to me that senior leaders care about everybody in their organization. And I suspect what happened was that my boss's boss had told him that uh, he had a good lieutenant that was going through some personal problems. And the way he was dealing with it was just staying at work. And he could use a little word of encouragement. And so the brigade commander, and again, we had never met before sought me out on a Friday night at 7.30 to offer me those words of encouragement. And it really, really made an impression on me. So much so that 12 years later, when I'm a battalion commander and I had a 1,000 soldiers, I learned that Lieutenant General, three-star Jack Woodmancy, retired, was coming to Fort Knox, where I had my command of my battalion. So I called the protocol office and I said, hey, uh, I used to work for General Woodmancy when he was a colonel down at Fort Hood, Texas. I'd love to have him come over and speak to my officers about leadership. Can you check and see if he'd be willing to do that? And they did, and he agreed, and he came over. And I introduced him to my 45 or 50 officers by telling them that story. And I said, you know, this is what true leadership is about. When you demonstrate that you care about everybody in your organization, in such a way that it sticks with that person essentially forever. Because I can see in my own mind's eye today, and it's almost 50 years ago, (laughs) I can see 45 years ago, I can see us walking through that motor pool and, and hearing him talk to me today. And I've forgotten a heck of a lot of things in my lifetime, but I've never forgotten that. And, uh, that made such an impression on me. Now there's one more spinoff of this story because I was, To use another metaphor, I was in a dark place in a tunnel, and I couldn't see the light at the end of the tunnel at the time. 
And about seven months later, I was at Fort Knox, Kentucky, going through the advanced course. And I met a young lady named Karen Lusk, who today has been my wife for 42 years. And as I reflect back on that experience, I cannot imagine life turning out differently than it has. I've got two wonderful kids. I've got the finest grandson on the planet. And it it turned out very, very uh, well. But in 1976, when I was going through this horrible personal experience, I couldn't see that. I couldn't see the light at the end of the tunnel, but there was light at the end of my tunnel, just like General Woodmancy said. That's an incredible story. And I think it serves as a good lesson for all our listeners out there, for all our leaders, um, regardless what level you're at, but more so even at the second line or, or higher level. The, the impact that we make on our employees' lives can be profound. I mean, here in this scenario, as you said, you were, you know, in a dark place and, you know, a 30-minute conversation, uh, I guess, from your base commander who you never met before had a dramatic impact on you uh, and kind of lifted your spirits during that dark time. Is that fair? Yeah, and so that was a rock I put in my rucksack and I carried with me the entire time because I'm certainly aware that other people are going through the same kinds of problems that I had back then and many other kinds of problems as well. And so having a sensitivity to these, these kinds of things and seeking out people that you can help in some way, uh, however small it may be, by offering some words of encouragement and demonstrating that you care about them is an important rock uh, for everybody to put in their rucksack. Yeah, it's a great story. And it does remind me of uh, there's a, uh, an engagement, employee engagement survey out there by Gallup, the Q12. And I'm sure many of my listeners are familiar with it, uh, and it measures employee engagement. And it's only 12 questions. And one of the questions specifically asks, my supervisor or someone at work seems to care about me as a person. And Gallup has been doing and has been delivering the survey for many, many years. They have tens of thousands of data points. And your story basically validates how important that question is and why it correlates to employee engagement. Yeah, Rob, let me tell another short story. Some of your listeners have heard before. It's certainly not my story. It's one that I picked up and put in my kit bag. But there's a professor, and uh, he's teaching a graduate course on leadership. And they're gonna, students are going to have a test. And the students come in, and they open their test booklet, and there's one question, and only one question. And the question is, what is the name of the person that cleans this room? And nobody in the class knew the name of the person that cleaned the room, even though they had seen him many, many times uh, in and around the class period. And so everybody flunked the, the test that day. But what it demonstrated was that the everybody contributes in some way uh, to the success of others. And that janitor contributed to that course by cleaning the room, by making sure it was ready for the students. Nobody had bothered to go meet him, to say anything to him. And I think it was a, a powerful lesson for all the students when they left that day that uh, leadership's all about caring about everybody who collectively participates uh, to get the, 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 the organization where it needs to be. You reminded me of, of another chapter in your book where you talk about how tall is your ladder. So perhaps you can share a little 
bit of your perspective on that, because I, I found that chapter very interesting when I read it. When I was uh, at Command and General Staff College, mid-level schooling, so one-year course at Fort Leavenworth, Kansas, in the mid-80s, there were about 800 majors that were students. And every year, the chief of staff of the Army, the senior guy in the, in the Army, came out and spoke to us in the spring. And we all gathered in this big conference room or this big auditorium. And at the end, he took questions. And a major raised his hand. And he said, sir, how do you define success in today's Army? Is it getting promoted to lieutenant colonel? Is it battalion command? Is it making it to 20 years so you can retire? How do you define success in today's Army? And the chief of staff of the Army thought for a moment, and he said, you know, all of you probably think I've been very successful. And we all chuckled and thought, yeah, he's, he's a four-star general. He said, yep, I'm, I'm a four-star general and the chief of staff of the Army. But there are another 10 or so four-star generals in the Army. And I can assure you that some of them, were they in my position as the senior guy in the military, would be disappointed if they retired in that position. And we all looked at him kind of strange. And he said, and the reason is because a career in the military, a career in life, quite frankly, is like climbing a ladder. When you start at the bottom and you reach out and you grab that first rung on the ladder, it's not that difficult. But as you climb the ladder, the rungs start to get further apart. The air is thinner because you're getting higher. You're tired because you're climbing. And at some point, you're all going to reach the last rung on your ladder. For me, as the chief of staff of the Army, a four-star general, I'm at the last rung on my ladder. There's another rung above me. It's the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. But I won't get selected for that. I know that. And I will retire as chief of staff of the Army. So if you aspire to continually reach the next rung on your ladder, at some point, you're going to be disappointed. And hopefully, you're not going to be bitter. But some of them, some would be uh, bitter as well. So certainly strive to achieve an achievable rung on the ladder. But once you get there, be satisfied. And everything else after that is gravy. So I said to myself that day, I hope that I can achieve battalion command. That's what I will strive to get. And if I get to that point, become a battalion commander, which is a lieutenant colonel commanding soldiers, then I'll be happy. And I did get that a couple of years later. And after that, everything else is gravy. And I did get promotions and I did get command assignments after that. And I had to remind myself, hey, I got to the last rung of my ladder. I'm content. If I retire tomorrow at this grade, that's just fine because I got to the last rung on my ladder. Now, after I wrote that chapter, I thought there will be some cynics out there who probably think I'm suggesting that you be satisfied with mediocrity, that you don't strive to achieve. So I wrote another chapter, which is immediately follows uh, that chapter, called The 1% Advantage. And I talk about those people who are constantly striving to get to the very top of their ladder, world-class athletes who want to be have a gold medal, an example, entertainers who want to have an Oscar or an Emmy or a Grammy. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. Not everybody can get there. And I'm not discouraging people from trying to get there. But people do need to understand that as you strive to get perfection, we'll call it that, there could be sacrifices that go with that. You might have to give up certain things. And we've all heard stories about world-class athletes who started when they were, you know, four or five years old, and that's the only thing they did 
their entire life was that sport, whatever it is, whether it's tennis or gymnastics or whatever it is, so that they could get to that last rung, the gold medal on their ladder. But it comes with sacrifices. I like to tell the story about a colonel that I knew who went to West Point. And West Point has reunions and people go back to the reunions religiously. And this colonel told me he went back to a a reunion recently and he saw one of his classmates over at the bar by himself with his back turned. Uh, This guy was a retired three-star general. He went over, we'll call him John. He went over to John and he said, hey, John, how you doing? And when John turned around, his eyes were a little misty. And he didn't know if it was because John had had too much to drink or because something was wrong. He said, hey, you doing okay? And John said, you know, I busted my ass for 37 years. The Army rewarded me with promotions and command assignments. And along the way, my wife left me. And now my kids won't talk to me. So you have to wonder, did he put his priorities right at the right time? The 1% advantage, which he obviously was striving to get to the next rung on his ladder consistently, may have been just too much. And he he gave up something that now he probably regrets. Well, and we're almost out of time, but I want to ask one follow-up question with that related to the rocks in your jar. And, and perhaps you can share a little bit about that, because uh, it sounded like to me when I read the book that that kind of tied in a little bit to what you were just talking about in terms of prioritizing. So there's a professor, and he's standing at the front end of the class, and he reaches underneath the table that's in front of him. He pulls out a big jar, and he puts it on top of the table. And then he reaches out and grabs a bag of rocks, and he puts it up on the table, and he starts taking each of the rocks, and he puts them in the jar one at a time until the jar fills up to the top with rocks. And then he turns to his class and he says, is the jar full? And they all go, yep, the jar is full. So he then pulls out a bag of sand and he pours the sand in the jar. And the sand granules go down amongst all the rocks until it fills up to the top. And he turns to the class and he says, is the jar full? And the students now say, well, you fooled us the first time. Uh, But yeah, now the jar is full. So then he pulls out a pitcher of water and he pours the water in the jar and the water goes down amongst the rocks and down among the sand and fills up all the cracks and granules, uh, the spaces in between the sand granules until it comes all the way to the top. And he says to the class, is the jar full? And they all go, well, (laughs) we have no idea what you could be pulling out now, but I, we think the jar is full. And he said, you know, the moral of this story is The rocks represent what's most important in your life. Put the rocks in the jar first, because if you put the sand and the water in the jar first, you're not going to get every rock in the jar. The rocks represent the most important things in your life. And so when I heard that story the first time, it was, again, one of those metaphorical rocks that I put in my rucksack, and it made me decide What's the most important thing in my life uh, as I move on my journey? Let me make sure I put the right rocks in my jar. And as you reflect back on the West Point story I just told, that general may have been wondering, did he put the right rocks in his jar at the, at the right time? Because he obviously at one time put the professional rocks in the jar before his family because his wife left him and his kids won't talk to him. 
And so it's important to understand what's most important to you and that you put those rocks in the jar first. And everybody's going to be different. It could be family. It could be faith. It could be climbing that ladder to the very top. Uh, could be making a lot of money. It doesn't matter what it is. You just need to understand that all the other things, which are represented by the sand and the water, are less important. And the rocks are the most important. So put those rocks in the jar first. I think that's great advice. And and for you, I know that, as you talked about in your book, uh, you went through another difficult time in your life that also helped you to uh, prioritize as you were approaching decisions on possibly retiring. Is that fair? Yeah. So my sister committed suicide in 1999 on Christmas Eve. And I found out about it uh, when I was on vacation in Hawaii with my parents. And the Army Operations Center contacted me. They had been contacted by the Red Cross. And they told me that my sister had died. And I didn't really know the circumstances until a couple of days later. But I had to take my parents out into the grounds of the Holico Hotel, sit them down on a park bench and explain to them that they had lost the only daughter that they had. We found out a couple of days later that she had taken her own life. She had had a very, very difficult life, but she wrote a, a note to her kids. And in the note, she said, I cannot see the light at the end of the tunnel. And coincidentally and ironically, it's a, almost a word for word what Colonel Woodmansey said to me in that motor pool. There's light at the end of this tunnel. You just can't see it yet. And so I, as I reflect back on my sister, I wonder, had she had the determination, the perseverance, the faith, and the patience to, to wait, maybe she would have seen the light at the end of her tunnel. Because her middle son had just left the previous month to go off to boot camp and join the Marine Corps. And today, uh, he is a retired Chief Warrant Officer 4 for the Marine Corps, uh, has a wife and two kids and a dog and is starting a whole nother career in North Carolina. She had no idea at the time she took her life uh, what she had in front of her. And it made, makes me wonder, well, if she was able to see that, would she have reconsidered? My daughter was 14 years old at the time. And my daughter wasn't at any risk like my sister was. But I wanted to make sure that I put the right rocks in my jar going forward. So I told the Army after that incident that I wanted to retire two years later when I hit 30 years so I could turn my attention to my daughter and give her every opportunity to succeed that I could. And she has been very, very successful. And it's not because of me. It's 99% of it is because of her. But the 1% that I contributed was turning my attention away from an army career and uh, turning my attention to her and making sure that she had all the tools in her kit bag uh, to do what uh, she needed to do to be successful. She now works for Disney world. She's a lighting designer. She owns her own home. She's happily married. She travels all over the world. She couldn't be more happy in what she's doing. And part of that, a very small part, I think is because I learned that I need to put, my daughter's rock in my jar first, not my army career. And so I retired when I hit 30 years service. Well, I appreciate you sharing that story and, and for being vulnerable 
I, I think it's a once again another powerful lesson that that you're you're teaching all of us. And for myself and for many of my listeners, I'm sure we're all in the daily grind, and it's it's uh, unfortunately easy to lose sight of what's important. But I know after reading your your book and and listening to your story. I know how I'm reminded now of, of to think of the rocks that I want to make sure I have in my jar. Well, General, unfortunately, we are out of time. I know I can sit here for another hour at least and just listen to you and, and learn from you. And for my listeners out there, we will put a few links in the show notes related to General Wielden's book and his website where you can learn more about him or even inquire about bringing him in as a keynote speaker. Once again, General, on behalf of my listeners, I want to first thank you for your long distinguished service to our nation and for sharing your leadership journey with us. It's been a privilege. Thank you. Thank you, Rob. I appreciate the opportunity. Thanks so much for listening in today. If you're enjoying the podcast, then click the subscribe button, leave a review, and I'll talk to you soon on the next episode of the Leadership Jam Session Podcast.